Well, good morning, and uh, let me be another one to add my voice to the, the round of Happy Mother's Days that is being passed around uh, this morning, um, and just say how thankful uh, we are for all of the mothers in the room and for all of the ways in which God uses mothers and works through motherhood to shape all of us into the, into the people that we are. Um, we love you. We honor you, and uh, all of this is because I forgot to say something to my wife this morning, so (laughs) I just, happy Mother's Day, and I hope you feel honored and blessed today. But I want to as well uh, be another voice that acknowledges how complex Mother's Day can be uh, for people in other situations. Um, For me this year, Mother's Day has a few layers to it. Mother's Day is... Uh, honoring Krista for all of the ways and she, and she invests in our family and basically is responsible for everything that's good and beautiful that comes out of my daughters. Um, but Mother's Day is also remembering my mom uh, who died uh, eight years ago tomorrow. And Mother's Day is about honoring my stepmom who has become an important part of our family and for everything, honoring her for who she is and for she, who she is in the lives my kids, and so on. And it's about walking with my mother-in-law, who a year ago when my father-in-law passed away uh, became, you know, our sole parent on that side and just walking with her through the dynamics of doing Mother's Day without dad around. It's, there's lots of emotions, and it's a complex thing, Mother's Day. And I know for other people in the room, it's more complex still for other reasons, for relational reasons, you know, your relationship with your mom or, you know, singleness reasons and a desire to be a mom or physiological reasons or emotional reasons. There's, there's just lots of things that make Mother's Day complicated. We acknowledge that, acknowledge that and know that we uh, honor you, uh, women uh, throughout our community in the journey that you're on. And even that is just a tip of the iceberg of just how complex life itself can be thinking about the, our whole community and the challenges that people carry into and carry through life, um, just as being a part of life in this world. Life is complex and complicated and sometimes unstable and unsafe. And, and honestly, a, a part of what this Anchored series is all about is it's about finding places to anchor ourselves, finding places to tether ourselves, to use the language of last week, finding places where we can tie off and be secure, feel a sense of stability and safety, regardless of where the journey of life carries us. This is about knowing where we can stand with confidence and security in the midst of the instability of the rest of life. And so last week we talked about our, the, the number one core conviction, this place that we can stand, this belief that we share that in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. As the, as the creed says, that we believe in God, the Father Almighty, who created the heaven and the earth, that behind everything that we see in this world, behind all of creation is the towering figure of a creator who 
offers creation or who has created the universe as a, a written declaration of, of the beauty of his goodness and love and as an, is, extends it to us as an invitation for us to engage with him, as the Bible says, to seek him, to look for him in all of life and to reach out for him and to find him because he is the reality in which we live and move and have our being. He is closer than the air we breathe. He is in the atmosphere in which we move. God is in the sounds that we hear and the sights that we see. And God is, is incredibly close to every one of us. But it was also about acknowledging, as the Bible says, that the God who made the whole world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, is the one who sits high and exalted on the throne and who reigns and rules over all of creation, the God who is in charge the God who is in control the God who can be trusted the same God who created the world can be trusted to speak light into darkness and to speak order into chaos and to speak uh, abundance into emptiness and beauty into brokenness he can be trusted to speak life into the midst of death and it's in that in the life of that God that we anchor ourselves and say in this place we live and we live with confidence and security despite what happens all around us. Well, this morning we want to turn to a second core conviction in which we anchor ourselves. And it, as it turns out in the Gospel of John chapter 1, the second core conviction begins in exactly the same place as the first core conviction. It says this, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. These are the opening words of the biography of Jesus as written by one of his best friends, a guy by the name of John, who was his disciple for three years. And John decides to begin the story of Jesus in exactly the same place that the scriptures decide to begin the story of God's interaction with the entire universe, which is in the beginning. In beginning his book that way, in the beginning, John is saying that his story is a part of the story of God's relationship with the universe. That in the moments and the seconds behind the big beginning to all of creation stands not just the towering figure of a creator, but along with the creator, God the Father Almighty, stands the towering figure of God the Son. Of Jesus, who was with God in the beginning and who was God. In other words, who was, in very, was the extension of the very being of God. As one translation says, everything that God was, the word Jesus was. Jesus was with God and was God in the very beginning through whom everything was made that was made. It's interesting that John chooses, he doesn't talk about Jesus in these verses, he talks about the word. He means Jesus, but the phrase he uses is the word. He's, he's writing to both uh, Greek Gentiles and to, Jewish, uh, to a Jewish audience. And to both of those audiences, that phrase, the word, the, the Greek word is logos. The logos has a particular meaning. In Greek philosophical thought, at least in some schools, the logos was the rational principle that pervaded the entire universe. It was kind of the, the soul of the universe that brought form and substance and sense 
to everything. It was this rational principle that held the entire universe together, that sustained everything in all of creation, even pervading humanity. The the logos, the word, was the source of the rational soul in humanity. It was what made human beings human beings. That was the logos. It was the logic of the divine that undergirded all of creation. And that was Jesus. To the Jewish audience, the word would communicate something more like God in action in the world. In the first chapter of Genesis, it says that God created the heavens and the earth, but he did it by speaking the word of creation. So God said, let there be light, and there was light. God spoke the word, and something happened. That's the Jewish understanding, so that the psalmist can say, by his word, the heavens were made. The word of God is God in action. The psalmist in another place can say that he sent forth his word, and the word brought healing. The prophet Isaiah can say that the word of God never goes forward without accomplishing the purpose for which it was sent. The word of God is the agent through which God is at work in the world. It communicates and fulfills God's intention and his purpose in creation. That's who Jesus is to John. Jesus is what pervades Jesus is the sense and the sensibility that pervades all of creation that gives form and substance to everything that holds the universe together he is the logic that underlies everything he is God in action in the world he is how God accomplishes his purpose John goes on to say in verse 14 he says the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us we've seen his glory The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John says the time came in human history when the word Jesus, the cosmic Christ who stands behind all of creation and it is God in action, became a flesh and blood human being. That the person of Jesus of Nazareth is the creator God of the universe, living life with skin on. It says he came and dwelt among us. The, the Greek word is tented. He, he tented in our midst. He took up residence among humanity. But actually the word uh, for tented, it goes deeper than that because the, the Greek word for tented is actually related to a Hebrew word that stands for the, the tent of meeting, the Jews called it. The place where they believed that God's presence dwelled. The place where they would go to meet with God and the tent of meeting was set up right in the middle of God's people. When John says that Jesus became God The creator became a flesh and blood human being and tented among us. He says he became the presence of God in our midst, the place where you could go to meet with God. The word tented is related to a Hebrew word, Shekinah, which communicates the tangible presence of the glory of God. Jesus was the presence of the glory of God, the the revelation of the beauty of God's goodness and love right in the midst of humanity. 
the place where you could go to meet up with who God is, experience the presence of God. Jesus is the word in the sense of the self-expression of God. Jesus is what God would want to say to humanity about himself. And John says that what God wants to say is that he is full of both grace and truth. When he says full of grace and truth, John is actually quoting the Old Testament. There was a day when Moses, Israel's first great prophet, said to God, I want to see you parade your goodness in front of me. And it says in Exodus 34, the Lord came down in the cloud, in the Shekinah. He made his presence tangible in his midst. And he stood there with Moses and proclaimed his name, the Lord. In other words, he described his character. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord. This is what God is like. The compassionate and gracious God who is slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. When, when the book says abounding in love and faithfulness, the Greek way to say that is full of grace and truth. John is saying that the God who revealed himself to Moses is the God who shows up and lives among humanity in the person of Jesus, the God that's abounding in love who is compassionate over the brokenness of humanity, who is gracious in the sense of of lavishing undeserved kindness on humanity, who is um, slow to anger, who is infinitely patient with the failings of human beings, the God who is abounding in love, and the God who is abounding in faithfulness, who maintains love to thousands and forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin, the God who remains faithfully committed to humanity even when we wander and stray from him. This is the God who reveals himself in Jesus. This is what God wanted to say about himself through the humanity of Jesus. That he is this kind of a God. John's point in simple is that the truth about Jesus is that you can look directly at Jesus and discover exactly what God is like. But the truth about Jesus actually goes deeper than that because in Jesus, the word, the creator became a flesh and blood human being. So you could look at Jesus and discover exactly what human beings could be like when their lives are infused with the divine life. You could look at Jesus and know what you could be like. It's all in Jesus' You, you see it in Jesus' life, the, what, what God always intended humanity to be. You hear it in Jesus' teaching. In his most famous sermon called the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus describes the human life of a person who is committed to partnering with God to see God's dreams realized for creation. The Bible's language for that is to see God's kingdom come. Which of course, or God's will being done on earth, which of course God's will is to love. And in the Sermon on the Mount, the way Jesus, Jesus describes that life of a human being lived in relationship with God. And he says the life that God wants is a life of genuine spirituality, of praying and fasting and generosity that comes not as um, empty ritual and religiosity, but comes out of a sincere place in the heart. He wants people to live a life devoted to, to God's agenda rather than greed's agenda. 
A life where we trust him to take care of us rather than being overwhelmed by anxiety and worry. A life where we recognize the power and importance of forgiveness. Forgiveness received and forgiveness given. A life where we're committed to living in obedience to the way of Jesus rather than falling into or pursuing temptation. He describes what that life looks like when it's lived in relationship with other human beings. It's a life that chooses reconciliation rather than bitterness and anger. A life that chooses to respect the dignity of others rather than indulging in lust. A life that is committed to faithfulness to relationship rather than allowing relationships to be broken. A life devoted to generosity rather than uh, pettiness. A life devoted to mercy rather than judgmentalism. A life that is devoted to love even when the other person is committed to hate. The life that's captured in this simple idea of treating everyone else the way you would want them to treat you. The reality is that in per- the person of Jesus, the word of God uh, the creator, the, the, the rational logic, the, the, the underlying principle of the entire relationship, the one that holds the universe together and gives substance and form to everything, the one that is God in action in the world, that Jesus became a human being. And when you look at the person of Jesus, you can discover exactly what God is like, And when you look at the person of Jesus, you can discover exactly what human beings are to be like. Not just in his teaching, but in the way that he lived. One of my favorite passages about Jesus, Matthew chapter 9. It says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages in Israel, teaching this way of being human, in, you know, infused with the divine, teaching this in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, that, that the love of God was breaking into the world, and healing every disease and sickness, being an agent of healing and restoration in the world. And listen to this, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. When Jesus saw the crowds, when he saw The brokenness of the people, it broke him on the inside. The word compassion means literally like in his gut. To see the brokenness of humanity was like a punch in the stomach to Jesus. Because he could see that people were harassed itself. that That they were being violently abused by life. That they were helpless. They were being thrown down and they couldn't get up. And they couldn't defend or help themselves. It says they were like sheep without a shepherd. They needed someone who would come along to strengthen the weak. And to heal the sick. And to bind up the injured. And to take in the strays. And to go searching for those who have gotten lost along the way and this is what Jesus committed his life to and in the very next chapter Jesus sends his disciples and says now you go and do and be what I have been doing and being that when you look at the person of Jesus you don't just discover the truth about what God is like you discover the truth about what we were meant to be like as well but not just in his life. It wasn't just the life of Jesus that mattered as though he were uh, simply some you know, uh, teacher of spiritual wisdom or some great moral example of love, though he was those things. It wasn't just the life of Jesus that mattered, it's the death of Jesus that mattered. The Jesus came, the word of God became flesh, not simply to live, but to, to die. 
The death of Jesus is the centerpiece of the good news of the Bible. And it's hard in one sense to really wrap your arms around what it is that Jesus accomplished on the cross. In fact, as you read the New Testament, what you discover, if you're reading carefully, is that the the Bible writers don't even resort really to explanation. What they usually offer is something more along the line of metaphor, that the best we can do to try and understand what it is that Jesus accomplished for us on the cross is to say, well, it's a little bit like this. And one of the most foundational metaphors for what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross is the metaphor of a cosmic battlefield. That it's the perspective of the New Testament that prior to the coming of Jesus, the world was essentially under the control of the forces of evil. That at the end of the day, though God is reigning, God is on the throne, God is sovereign over everything, that in really practical ways, at the end of the day, it was the power of evil that was dictating the course of human history more than anything else. The Bible says that Jesus comes into human history and on the cross he confronts, he, he enters into a showdown with the powers of evil. The the most destructive, the most dangerous weapon, the nuclear option, the only weapon that evil has at its disposal is death. And and Jesus, in choosing to die on the cross, in a sense, stands on the the railroad tracks and invites the freight train of evil to, to come at him in full force. Jesus takes the full brunt of evil at its very worst, allowing himself to be put to death in the most inhumane way possible, in the most inhumane way imaginable. And yet three days later, the scriptures say he was raised from the dead to demonstrate that the power of Jesus is greater than the power of sin and death. To break the back of the the power of evil, to, to break the stranglehold that evil and darkness had on the world. In Colossians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul describes it like this. He says, having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The the word powers and authorities, those were words that, that ancient Jews used to use to describe these forces of evil that were dictating the trajectory of human history in the world. They were the forces of evil in the unseen realms. And Paul says what Jesus did on the cross is he entered into battle with the powers and authorities, the forces of evil that are, and he ended up disarming them, stripping them of their power. Not that evil doesn't happen in the world anymore, of course. But evil is no longer the ultimate power at work in the world. Evil no longer has the power to dictate the course of human history. Jesus has disarmed the power of evil and Jesus has assumed control. Jesus now sits on the throne of the universe and is Jesus who is guiding creation towards God's dream for what the world could always be like. It says he, he disarmed the powers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. In the ancient world, in the Roman Empire, in the days before mass media, before social media, 
When a general of the Roman army wins an important battle, defeats uh, a nation that, that Rome has been warring with, when they win a decisive and important battle, they would write a letter back to the Caesar in Rome and they would ask permission to stage a triumph. Uh, a triumph was the name of a parade that they would hold in the, ultimately in the city of Rome. They would... The general, what the general would do is gather all of his troops together, gather all of the spoils of war that they had accumulated, all of the gold and the silver and all of the riches and the abundance or whatever that they had accumulated by virtue of their victory over this nation that they had conquered. They'd gather all the livestock, all the sheep, all the cattle, everything of value. They would gather it together and they would march the soldiers and all of this stuff back towards the city of Rome. And it was like this gigantic parade announcing this incredible victory that had been won. And in the middle of this parade, there would be all of the slaves, the the soldiers that had been captured, the women, the children, um, all the human beings that were going to be dragged back to Rome and be forced to be slaves in the Roman Empire. They were all marched back to the city of Rome. And then right at the end of the parade were the kings and the princes and the nobility of the conquered nation who would be marched through the streets of Rome naked to make a public spectacle of their incredible defeat, their humiliating loss to the unquestionable power of Rome. Paul says that's what Jesus did to the power of evil in the world. Through the resurrection, three days later, Jesus humiliated evil, demonstrating once and for all that he had defeated the power of evil and was now guiding the trajectory of human history in a new direction. What that means for us, Paul describes in Colossians chapter 1, he says, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. He's brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. This is Paul piling on more metaphors to try and understand what it is that's happened in the cross. He says, he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. We were like spiritual POWs who were caught behind enemy lines and who were forced to cooperate with the power of evil in the way that we lived our lives in the world. Not that we were as bad as we could possibly be, not that everything that we did was horrible all the time, but we were living lives that were in some level deeply out of sync with the kind of life that Jesus describes in the Sermon on the Mount, the kind of life Jesus models with his own life. We weren't, we were living in collusion with the power of darkness in the world, choosing behaviors that were self-destructive, spiritually self-destructive, emotionally self-destructive, relationally self-destructive, societally self-destructive, creationally self-destructive. That's what sin is. Sin is self-destructive behavior. And we had been participating in that. And Jesus, the word becoming flesh, God coming to earth as a human being, both to live and then to die, was like God running this cosmic rescue operation where he 
Jesus drops in behind enemy lines, defeats the enemy from within, and rescues all of us spiritual POWs, marching us out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of his son, where we are now set free to become the people that God always created us to be. Our lives can be ruled by a brand new power, which isn't the power of darkness, it's the power of the light power of God at work in us so we can become the kind of humanity that Jesus models what a human being looks like when it's infused with the life of the divine. That's what the word redemption gets at. The word redemption comes from the slave trade. It's a metaphor of slave trade. It's, it literally refers to the price that gets paid in the slave market to purchase the freedom of a slave. Jesus on the cross paid an enormous personal price to set us free from the power of sin and darkness, free to become something that we could have never become on our own. People who resemble the person of Jesus. He talks about the forgiveness of sin. It's a metaphor that comes out of the financial sector. It talks about God, you know, it talks about the writing off of a debt, the cancellation of a debt. We owed God a debt of obedience that we failed to pay. And in Jesus on the cross, God looks at us and says, don't worry about it. All's forgiven. Consider us square. In fact, it goes further than that. Later on in Colossians chapter one, Paul changes metaphors again. And he says, we've been reconciled to God. It's a relational metaphor that we who were once enemies, we who were once fighting on the other side have now been reconciled to God so that those who were once enemies are now considered to be friends. In fact, the relationship goes even deeper. In another letter, Paul says that we have been adopted by God, that those who were once enemies are now not only friends but have been adopted into God's family. We've become the brothers and sisters of Jesus. We've become children of God. We've become a part of, of God's own family and God loves us like a, like a parent loves their own children because of what Jesus has done. This, friends, is a place of incredible hope and a place that, that promises incredible life. That whatever you're experiencing right now, what the, what the life and the death of Jesus, what we anchor ourselves in the life and the death of Jesus is we're anchoring ourselves in the reality of resurrection. Which I know, I mean, all of these things are just so incredible to imagine believing, right? That God would become a human being, that a man who was dead would be alive again. I know these are incredible things. But we claim them in faith. Believing that because of Jesus, regardless of where your life is right now, regardless of the darkness which you find yourself in, regardless of the, the chaos you find yourself battling or the emptiness that you sometimes live, regardless of the brokenness that you've experienced or the death that feels like it's swirling around your life, that Jesus promises resurrection. There is life and beauty and abundance, and order, and light that is breaking into our reality because of Jesus. As the band comes back to the stage, that's what we want to celebrate in all of our locations this morning. The reality of what God has done for us in Jesus. And we're going to celebrate it by taking the Lord's Supper together.
In the Lord's Supper, um, Jesus offers us a piece of bread that represents his humanity, that represents his body, that reminds us that the God who created the universe and is the life force behind everything, the God who is in action in the world, showed up in our world as a human being to show us not only what God is like, but to show us what we could be like if we would only anchor our lives to him in faith. He offers us a loaf of bread and says, this is my body. Remember me. Remember what I am about. He offers us the juice, which is the blood of his covenant, which is a reminder of his death on the cross that says the reason that you know that you can be friends of God, adopted by him, the reason you can be set free from the life you've been living, the reason that you can experience forgiveness and have your debt with God completely wiped away, the reason that you can come out of darkness and live in the light is because I have given, I've paid the price. I have given everything I have for you. And now, To you, I extend the hope of resurrection no matter what you're living in right now. And so this morning, if you're here this morning as somebody who wants to anchor your life in Jesus, who wants to anchor your life in what Jesus reveals to be true about God, what Jesus reveals to be true about you, if you want to anchor your life in the death and resurrection of Jesus and in the hope that that offers to you, then I invite you to participate with us this morning. To come and to eat, to drink, to take in to the to the deepest part of your being, the truth about who Jesus is, to take communion as a prayer that God would anchor your life in him in a way that would cause you to never move. Let's pray. Jesus, we come today, those of us who are coming to the table, we come as those who believe in you believe in what you've taught us about who God is, who believe in what you have shown us about who we could be and who have made it possible for us to experience a new life as we put our trust, as we anchor ourselves fully in your death and resurrection. Would you please make real to us in the deepest part of our being the reality of how we've been set free, the hope of resurrection that you extend to every single one of us as we eat and we drink and embrace the the truth about who you are. We pray in Jesus' name.